It's the 31st of January, 2015, and this is episode 183. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm the editor-in-chief here at LTB, and today we're learning about one of the most forward-thinking projects I've yet encountered in this new, exciting ecosystem. This talk comes to us courtesy of the Australian Bitcoin Conference from 2014. Where blockchains end, open transaction picks up. Enjoy the show. that we have here is uh, going to be very interesting. Chris Odom is going to be talking to us, sharing a project that he's been working on for more than two years. And what we're looking at here is an alternative financial transaction system, a library of systems and platforms that could actually facilitate a whole different variety of financial transaction types, as well as a whole range of actual stores of financial value, be that currencies, cryptocurrencies, physical or virtual, be it commodities like silver and gold. The technology that he's been working on for more than two years, initially as an open source project, which he's then commercialised in recent time, is a kind of solution that actually would eliminate the kind of events that we saw with the collapse of the Mt. Gox exchange, where it seems that a large, large value of bitcoins have either been lost or stolen. This solution that Chris is going to be walking us through today actually eliminates the possibility of that occurring. CTO and co-founder of Monetus, Mr. Chris Oden. I'm the author of the Open Transaction System, which I started working on in January 2010. And I started the company Monetas with my partner Johan Geffers in 2012. We're building commercial software based on open transactions. But it's really sort of two different things. You have an open source project, and then you have a company that happens to be building software for it. Open transactions is a little bit different than everything else in the Bitcoin community. Bitcoin itself is based on blockchain technology, which is amazing stuff. The central invention, I think, of blockchains is that they are censorship resistant. No matter what you use it for. If you use... The blockchain as a form of money, such as in the case of Bitcoin, then what you have is a censorship-resistant form of money. If you use the blockchain as a naming system, like we see with Namecoin, then you have a censorship-resistant naming system, which is a good replacement for certificate authorities. If you use the blockchain for a messaging system, such as what we see in BitMessage, then you have a censorship-resistant messaging system, and so on and so forth. So the common thread continually comes back that the main technological advancement we see in blockchains is that they're censorship resistant. Uh, When I started working on open transactions, I'll just tell you a little story. I had a little bit of success in my life, and I was working actually in a more artistic field, and I was living in the Hollywood Hills, right under the Hollywood sign actually. They used to go out of my backyard and There would be the Hollywood sign. My wife and I, we threw a party, my girlfriend at the time, 
We threw a party New Year's Eve. So it was January 1st, 2010, and we threw a New Year's Eve party. A famous hacker came by the party by the name of Sammy. Has anyone here heard of Sammy? One person. Sammy's pretty famous. The first thing that he got well-known for was he wrote the MySpace worm. So he made a worm that if you got infected by it on your MySpace profile, it would change your subject line to Sammy is my hero. And it would add Sammy as your friend. And then it would send the, the worm to all your other MySpace friends. And then they would all set their title to Sammy is my hero and add Sammy as their friend and send it to all their friends and so on. And he told me that he could see his number of friends just going up exponentially. You know, he has a thousand friends and then a hundred thousand friends and then a million friends and then MySpace shuts down. I don't remember. I think he got up to 50 million friends or something like that. And then MySpace shut down and stopped working. It was pretty cool. And then he had the FBI knocking on his door. He got into a bit of a legal trouble for that. And the other thing that Sammy's pretty well known for is he wrote the Ever Cookie. Got some press a few years ago for this. It's sort of a cookie that can never be removed from your computer. It puts itself in 20 different little obscure places. And if one of them gets cleaned out, then the others just repopulate it. So in any case, Sammy came by my house, and this is January 2010, asking me about digital cash, because I have a history working in cryptography, and I always had an interest in digital cash. And he's asking me about digital cash, saying, what do you think about this stuff? You know, I said, I don't know, it's been a couple of years since I've looked into it, so I'm going to take some time and look into what's going on these days. And I remember thinking that there were certain things that I was just horrified that were not available yet as an open source library. In the 90s, I'd spent some time looking into this and thought, I'm going to make a GUI or something like that. And I remember thinking that the libraries weren't quite there. There wasn't enough there that, that I could just make a GUI, and I sort of lost interest in it for a few years. And then I'm looking back into it in 2010, and I can see that there's still not an open source library that people can use to do financial cryptography. There were some advances that were very cool, like Bitcoin, for example. And there are a few other projects that I found interesting that, that were inspiring to me. But I still felt like there wasn't some open source library that anyone could take and build financial crypto applications with. And I felt like it needed to exist. In fact, as I looked at the projects that were out there, I could see different pieces that I found inspiring. Like, for example, there's a project called True Ledger by Bill St. Clair. It has the ability to do what he called destruction of account history. Basically, the idea is it's not that you should destroy your account history, but if you did, it could still prove its state. It could still prove the current balances, that sort of thing. I thought that's, that's pretty cool. At the time Bitcoin was out, it was censorship resistant. That was pretty cool. There was another system called Loom. Loom made it possible to separate powers between the transaction server and the currency issuer. At the time, you know, I was thinking like gold. You guys remember eGold? They put him in an ankle bracelet. With Loom, they made it possible to separate the transaction server from the currency issuer. You could have a transaction server that could have maybe 100 different currencies issued there from different currency issuers. I thought that was pretty cool, this concept of separation of powers. OpenSSL is a cryptographic library used for communications. It's a library used for secure communications. 
and you can use it to build any kind of secure communications into all sorts of different applications. So a lot of different applications use the OpenSSL to do their crypto. And basically what I wanted to make with OT was I wanted to make a library that you could do that sort of same sort of thing except for financial crypto. The first thing is Open Transactions is a financial crypto library. It's a library, it's a C++ library that you can use to build software to do financial crypto actions. That's what it is at the core. Now it's written in C++. I don't know if anyone here has heard of Swig, but Swig is a tool that allows you to expose a C API in other languages. And so because of that, Open Transactions API is available in basically all the other languages. It's available in D, C Sharp, PHP, Python, Java, Go. And so really Open Transactions Library is available for software development in any language. And then using that library, I wrote a client and server. So that's the next thing I would say about OT is that it's a uh, server, specifically a transaction server. It's also a client API. If you're using it in different languages to build your own software, then most likely you'd be using the OT client API. Now, what else is OT? You see, at its most simple, it's client server, which is sort of the opposite of what the Bitcoin world is really shooting for. The whole idea in Bitcoin was to eliminate trusted servers. That was Satoshi's whole vision, right? Was take these trusted servers and eliminate them entirely, make a P2P network so you could have trustless transactions. And the idea in open transactions was not to eliminate servers, but it was to eliminate the need to trust those servers. So in OT, you do have servers, and you're able to exploit the benefits of running servers, but you don't have to trust them. Meaning, an OT server is not able to falsify your transactions. It's not able to forge your receipts. It's not able to change your balance. So, for example, PayPal can change your balance. If you have a PayPal balance of $100, then they can go in there and change it to, say, $50 if they wanted to. But if they were running OT software, they would not be able to do that. They would not be able to just go and change your balance. Now, this is counterintuitive for people to think about. They say, well, how is it that the server itself doesn't have the power to change your balance that's listed on that server? And the answer is because the uh, OT system uses triple signed receipts. So how does this work? Well, let's say that my balance was 100 clams. And I'm going to send 15 clams to Bob. So I, I drop a receipt. This is what the client API is doing. Draws up a receipt and it says, all right, my balance is 100 clams. I'm going to send 15 clams to Bob. My new balance will be 85 clams. Signed Alice. They take that signed receipt, send it to the server. The server verifies it and then countersigns it and sends it back to you. And that's your receipt. So notice that I, I actually had to put my balance on the receipt. So my balance is 100, my new balance will be 85, signed Alice. The server can't forge my signature, and so the server can't change my balance, because my balance is just whatever appears on the last receipt. You could basically throw away all the other receipts. Now, the client side and the server side both have a copy of these receipts, 
So what I'm saying is that the server could throw away all the receipts except for the most recent one. And the client could throw away all the receipts except for the most recent one. It's not that you should destroy your receipts or that you won't have some use for them, but the system can still prove everything it needs to prove without them. It can still prove your current balance. It can still prove which instruments are valid and which transactions have closed purely just through the last signed receipt, which means OT is able to process transactions without storing any transaction history at all, other than the last receipt. So in a way, it's kind of like the opposite of a blockchain. The blockchain stores the complete history. It stores every transaction that ever happened, like a normal double-entry ledger. You have a normal double-entry ledger, you add up all the transactions, and you get the balance at the bottom. If you were missing all those transactions, you would not be able to add them up and get the balance at the bottom anymore. But with triple-entry accounting, that's not the case. With triple-entry accounting, we have a signature on both sides of whatever the last signed balance was. So we don't need any, any of the other transactions to prove the current balance, just the most recent one. It's very interesting to me, this idea of destruction of account history, which I was inspired by the True Ledger system by Bill St. Clair to build that in there that way. It's the core, the core accounting system in OT. Now, we don't have to trust the server. The server can't forge the receipts. It can't falsify the balances. So we have sort of a low-trust server. But we still have a server, and that means that we're able to exploit the benefits of servers. Server-based transactions are much faster than blockchain-based transactions. Server-based transactions are much cheaper than blockchain-based transactions. And this will always be the case. Any kind of server-based transactions will always be much faster and much cheaper than any blockchain technology that ever exists. Now, of course, blockchains are still very important. My plans for OT involve extensive blockchain integration because I need what they're able to do. I need the censorship resistance that blockchains give me. But I'm also able to do things that blockchains can't do. And this is why there are a lot of plans in the Bitcoin world to integrate OT. Like, for example, Ethereum. Ethereum is planning to integrate OT because they say, well, our system can do certain things very, very well. But there are a couple things that it's not so good at, right? Because you, it's a trade-off. You make sacrifices. A blockchain gives us censorship resistance, but the trade-off is it's a little slower or a little more expensive. Or how do we do market trading, full-speed, high-speed trading? Do we come up with some blockchain-based solution for these things, which is very difficult, or just use OT for that? And that's the way it's going. That's why Ethereum is looking at integrating OT. That's why MasterCoin is looking at integrating OT. This is why BitShares people are talking about integrating OT. Because OT solves these problems that are very difficult in the blockchain world, but very easy on a server. So as long as you have a server that you don't have to trust, that's the way to go, in my opinion. Now, another thing about OT is we don't really want to think about it as a client-server system. That's what it is at its most basic. If you run a single server, then yes, you have a client-server system. But that's not really the way it should be run. The way it should be run is as a federated system, which means there are many servers, sort of like the web, right? There are many servers on the web. You don't really rely on any single one server. If one server disappears, the whole system still works. The client doesn't have to trust any one given server necessarily. 
and doesn't rely on any one given server. And if one server disappears, it'll just use a different one. Often the client is connecting to many servers. Think about this. Let's say that you downloaded a web page and it has some pictures on it. Each picture has its own URL. It may download the web page from one server and then download the picture from this server and download the picture from this server. It's basically just going to download from whatever server is in the link. So it's the same thing with OT. With OT, there are various server IDs. When it's negotiating a financial instrument, you may ask, well, what servers are going to use? And the answer is, well, whatever server ID is on the instrument. If the financial instrument has this server ID, then it'll connect to that server and negotiate the instrument there. May have a different instrument and connects to a different server and negotiates the instrument there. So, federated. There's still a problem. In open transactions, when I originally wrote it, I was thinking gold. I was thinking, I didn't like that they shut down eGold. I did not like that they put Douglas Jackson in an ankle bracelet and treated him like a criminal because he tried to give us eGold. So I want to make a system where you couldn't do that, where someone could run eGold, and it couldn't be so easily shut down because the powers get carved out, separated, separation of powers. Instead of having all the powers combined into a single thing, like, for example, look at eGold. They're holding all the gold. They're controlling all the balances. They have the power to change the balances whenever they want. It's like all the different powers get combined into this central thing. And then what happens is, is agents show up and knock on that door and control that thing or shut down that thing. So I was thinking to myself, I want to take all these different powers and separate them out and then distribute them across multiple entities. For example, keeping the ledger. That should be separated out from everything else and distributed across multiple entities. The storage of gold should be separated out into separate entity and then distributed across multiple entities. The distribution of risk. I don't really believe that you can eliminate risk entirely. I think there's just better, better and better ways to distribute that risk effectively so that you get a practical elimination of risk, even though you haven't completely eliminated the risk. Even Bitcoin is the same way. For example, in Bitcoin, you haven't completely eliminated all risk. There are still attacks possible in Bitcoin, but you've distributed that risk effectively in such a way that, that it seems that there's no risk. It seems trustless. There are still attacks. So, but I realized with Bitcoin, unlike gold, there are certain advantages in open transactions. With gold, let's say that you have a gold issuer. He issues a gold-based currency. How do you know that he's still actually holding that gold? How do you know if he actually has the gold in a safe somewhere? Because there's no way that a piece of software can climb into a safe physically and count physical ounces of gold. That's not possible. But with Bitcoin, it's possible. With Bitcoin, you can look at a blockchain location and see if that gold is there or not. You can actually prove if it's there or not. And let's go even one step further than that. One step further than that. Not only can you prove that the Bitcoin is actually there at a specific address or that a certain entity has control over it, because maybe he transfers it back and forth to prove he has control over it. But in Bitcoin, you can actually store it in such a way that the entity has no ability to steal it. Let's look at Mt. Gox, for example. If I take my Bitcoins and transfer them to Mt. Gox, then I'm trusting him to hold my Bitcoins. If he's public about his blockchain address, I can see whether or not he has them, but I still have to trust him 
Not to, for example, transfer them somewhere else. Give them to someone else. Or transfer them to his own little secret account. And it even gets worse than that. It's worse than that because let's say that he does transfer them somewhere else. He creates a new key. He transfers them somewhere else. And then he says, someone stole them. I don't know what happened. I, uh, they, I woke up and they were transferred out. How can we prove whether or not they were stolen by the trustee who was holding them in the first place or whether there actually was a malicious hacker? Can't he just claim there's a malicious hacker and really he was the guy who stole them and we just can't tell the difference between the two? There's no way to prove whether or not he actually stole them or not. This is a serious problem in the Bitcoin community. A serious problem that the person you trust to hold your money can steal it and then claim someone else did it and there's no way to tell. But what we can do is we can take those Bitcoins and transfer them into a multi-sig address where no single entity can steal them. This doesn't eliminate the risk, but it greatly reduces it and distributes it more effectively across multiple entities. For example, in Bitcoin, I can take a Bitcoin and instead of transferring it to one address, I can transfer it to a multi-sig address of, say, 10 servers simultaneously at once. So it goes into that voting pool. Now it takes a vote, X out of Y, to get those coins back out. No single server can steal those coins. So here on this diagram, we see OT clients. You can see some of these clients have multiple identities. This one, Chuck here, he's got three identities. Dan, he's got two identities. Because identity is just like a key pair. So you can create as many different identities as you want inside your OT wallet. And then what Alice does is she transfers some coins. See these Bitcoins? She's transferred them into a voting pool of OT servers. So in this example, you see three servers, one, two, and three. This is three OT servers, not just one. And she's transferred the coins to all three of them simultaneously. And it takes a vote, two out of three, to get the coins back out. These servers are constantly auditing each other in real time. So they know how many coins each one is supposed to have. So when the coins go in, let's say Alice is using server one. When the coins go into that voting pool, server one, he doesn't have control over them. But he can still see them. He can still see that they went into that pool. So he can still give her units in her account in OT. And once, once she has units in OT, of course, these are unforgeable receipts. So now we're in the OT system with these unforgeable receipts. And now she can use them like any other OT units. She can, she can write checks. She can send cashier's checks, or in the UK, they call them banker's checks. She can use untraceable cash. You guys familiar with Chamian Cash? Untraceable digital cash? He uses blind signatures to make the cash untraceable. So a server, for example, if I give you a piece of cash and then you deposit it, the server can see that the cash is good, but it has no idea where it came from. It can see that I'm withdrawing cash and depositing cash. And it can see that you're withdrawing cash and depositing cash, but it can't link the withdrawals to the deposits. They're mathematically untraceable through blind signatures. What else can you do in OT? Well, of course, OT has the unforgeable receipts. It also has market trading. So you can trade on markets. For example, not only can you put Bitcoin into these voting pools, but you can put colored coins into these voting pools. So you can issue colored coins based on gold or dollars or euros. And then those colored coins can go into voting pools just like normal Bitcoins would. 
You can have units issued inside OT, and now these units can be traded against each other on OT markets. So you can have full-speed trading, say Bitcoin against dollars or Bitcoin against euros, this sort of thing. And the server is not able to steal the colored coins or to steal the Bitcoins. And then whenever you want to get your coins back out, you submit a withdrawal request to the server. Server countersigns it. You send it to the other servers in the pool. They vote on the blockchain. They do a multi-sig vote. And then the coins are released back to your Bitcoin address. Now, what else do we have up here on this diagram? You can see we have blockchain-based currencies, Bitcoins, colored coins. We also have this name coin layer. What is this name coin layer? Well, basically, the identities inside open transactions, remember how I said it's a key pair? Well, it's a little more complicated than that. It's an OT credential that includes key pairs. You have uh, three key pairs and a master credential. You have authentication, encryption, and signing keys. And then a master credentials can issue sub-credentials. And so on, these credentials could, could be based on standard certificate authorities. So if you have a standard certificate authority like, you know, VeriSign, something like this, we have a normal cert, X509 cert, then you could use that to issue OT-based identities. But then the problem is now you have to trust the certificate authority. Theoretically, a man with a gun could go into the certificate authority and point the gun at an employee and issue himself a certificate in your name. And then use that certificate to go into OT and steal all your money. Now, that's probably not going to happen in a system where you have rule of law, but it's a real possibility. Namecoin eliminates that. Those who are familiar with Namecoin know that Namecoin basically allows us to have a certificate authority with no single trusted entity. Instead, you have a blockchain that serves as a certificate authority, and then we can issue identities based on the Namecoin blockchain. And that gives us the ability to have revocable credentials inside OT without having to have a trusted certificate authority who's trusted with the keys to our identities. Now, OT will work either way. We actually got our Namecoin integration working, and we can demonstrate it. It's in the main branch now of our GUI, our desktop GUI money changer. You can actually go and create a Namecoin-based identity. Of course, you have to have Namecoin running for it to work, but it works, which I think is cool. Now, another thing that we're able to do is using BitMessage layer. Now, of course, this is actually just an abstract interface. What does that mean? That means there could be a communications layer, could be 50 different communications layer. You know, you could have uh, one based on email. You could have one based on just IP. You could have one based on XMPP and so on, Jabber, whatever, IRC. But the first transport layer that we're adding for messaging and discovery is based on BitMessage. It's sort of like a plugin. You could have a BitMessage plugin. Later on, maybe we could have a Jabber plugin or whatever other plugin that you want. But I went with BitMessage first because it's censorship resistant and I think it's really cool. So what does this allow us to do? Well, on these servers, remember I said we have market trading going on, trading on markets. Well, what if there's a better offer on a different server that I'm not aware of? What you can do in BitMessage is you can create what's called a deterministic address. So you can take a certain deterministic seed and use it as a channel, and other people can listen on that same channel and communicate. So for example, let's say that I'm interested in trading gold for silver. I might take the gold ID and the silver ID, XOR them together, and that becomes a BitMessage channel. 
And anyone else who's interested in trading gold for silver could be listening to that same channel, P2P. And I can say, I'm on server A and, I, and I'm willing to trade gold for silver at this price. And someone else sees it and he's watching that same channel. And he says, oh, I wasn't aware of server A. And I like that price. So then his client just connects to that server and does the trade. What you have is you have centralized trading on each server, but you have decentralized discovery for trading across servers. You have cross-server trading. Now, in the Open Transactions client, in our desktop client, we have market trading working. And if you go in there, you know, I could pick server A, and it'll show me the offers on server A, or I could pick server B, or I could just say all servers. And then it's amalgamating all the offers from all, all the servers that I'm aware of. And so the order book that I'm seeing is actually on the client side. And it's, it's an amalgamation of various offers from multiple different servers put together. So when I see the last price, the high, the low, that's across all servers. So then you have cross-server trading, cross-server discovery. Now that same bit message layer also makes it very easy to do wires in and out of the legacy banking system. Just as I might say, well, I want to trade gold and silver on server A, instead I might say something like this. I might say, well, I want to move some dollar coins inside this system into a dollar bank account outside the system in a legacy bank. And then, again, you can have entities listening to these bit message channels who are willing to accept an escrow transaction inside OT in return for a bank transaction outside OT. So the sort of thing that you see with localbitcoins.com, where the Bitcoin's going to escrow, and then someone deposits some cash into a bank account, that sort of thing, you can do that all through your GUI using bit message channels. And we actually have a guy working on that right now. We have a guy on our IRC channel. And what he's making is a little Oracle server that's able to listen to the SSL session where someone is doing a bank transfer in their legacy bank. And then we can integrate that with an OT smart contract. And that's another thing that OT is able to do is scripted smart contracts. That is, customized agreements where you make a little script. So you might make a contract, say for escrow or whatever else you want to do, and actually make a little script that customizes the financial actions that you want to have. You put them in the contract, and then all the parties sign it and activate it, processes on the server. Just to give an example of how this works, with open transactions, I include a couple sample contracts, escrow being one of them. There's actually a, a sample escrow contract that comes with OT, where Alice wants to send some money to Bob based on Bob sending her a guitar through the snail mail, and after, say, a 17-day delay, the funds automatically go to Bob, unless Alice files a dispute, claiming that she never got the guitar, and then if that happens, then Judge Judy gets activated, who would be a third party to the contract, and then her job would be to look at the evidence from both sides and then adjudicate which way the funds are going to go. There are certain times that you have to have a human make a decision in these agreements. And so that's just another party to the contract. That's your mediator or arbitrator, adjudicator, who gets activated only in the case where a dispute is filed. And when is a dispute filed? Well, I mean, it's a custom contract, right? You can script it however you want. You can design it however you want. So that's open transactions. That's the basic concept. We have 
a working iPhone app. We have a working desktop GUI that works on Linux, Windows, and Mac. And we're working on an Android app now. We have a working server. And if you go online, you can find videos of these things in action. I recommend our wiki. It's opentransactions.org. If you go to opentransactions.org, that's our wiki. Probably the first link will say about open transactions. You see there'll be radio interviews, diagrams, and videos. And you can see videos of the desktop GUI in action, some market trading and so on, and also videos of the iPhone app in action. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by CryptoKit.com. The easiest, fastest way to send Bitcoins right from your browser. That's K-R-Y-P-T-O-K-I-T dot com if you'd like to learn more. Today's magic word is duck. That's D-U-C-K, duck. You've got until the 3rd of February to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. If you'd like to support the Let's Talk Bitcoin show beyond tipping, you can visit letstalkbitcoin.com and click the sponsor button at the top of the page. And today I'm pleased to announce another new Tokenly tool, now available for use at the letstalkbitcoin.com website. If you visit letstalkbitcoin.com slash vend, that's V-E-N-D, or click the buy button in the menu, you'll be taken to our LTB coin swap bot. A swap bot is like an automated token vending machine that lives on the internet. You send bitcoins or another token that is accepted to a bitcoin address, and a corresponding amount of whatever you're buying will be sent back to you. One of the cool features we've built into SwapBot is the ability to accept as many types of tokens as you want, each able to have a different price, discount, or premium associated with it. So you'll see when you visit letstalkbitcoin.com vend that you can buy LTB coin with Storages coin, Swarm, or Counterparty's native token XCP in what will be a growing list, in addition to, of course, bitcoin. While we give big discounts to LTB coin because it's the coin of our ecosystem, we accept newer, less popular or useful coins like the ones I just mentioned at a slight premium, 10% above the Bitcoin price, but you can spend them directly with the LTB coin platform. For now, only official LTB administered tokens are being listed, but soon we're going to open this up and we think this is going to be big. We consider this particular swap bot our automated retail outlet prototype mostly intended to let you trade your LTB coin for sponsor, LTB display, or my prepaid time tokens. However, since you do get the best value on anything else in our ecosystem with LTB coin by a pretty substantial margin, usually about 40%, we do offer LTB coin through our vending machine at a 20% premium to whatever the market is trading it at. Although it's open to whoever wants to use it, we'd rather people trading for profit use exchanges and contribute to the ecosystem by being part of our price discovery. If you'd like to check out our first SwapBot vending machine and all its prototype glory, head to letstalkbitcoin.com slash vend. And of course, as I mentioned, the sponsor system will let you redeem any of these tokens that you choose to buy for various things around the ecosystem. That's enough out of me. Let's rejoin Chris now for the Q&A. The question is, if you're doing a transaction, what happens if one of the servers goes down? And the answer is you just use a different server instead. Now keep in mind that the server is not actually storing any of the money. He's just processing receipts for you. So if he's not willing to do that or not available to do that, then you have someone else do that. And something else I should point out. Let's say that you have the coins in this voting pool here. Let's say Alice uploads her coins to the pool and she gets a balance on server one. And then server one disappears. 
She can still submit a recovery request to the other two servers. She can still get a two out of three vote and get her coins back. So the server can't just disappear with your money. That's really the main thing. You know, other than that, even if the server could disappear with your money, you could still use a different server to process the receipts, right? But in this case, it's not a problem. The server can't disappear with the money. And if he does disappear, then not only can you get your money back, but you can have other servers process your receipts instead. You just use a different server instead. Thank you for everything. I have two questions. Coming back to your um, regret for the e-gold being shut and the comments that you made about separation of powers for ledgers, storage of gold and risk, if I understand. Mm -hmm. I would like to understand better how do you see that, if you like, physically or operationally done what do you mean by that separation of powers in, let's say, reasonably technical terms? What do I mean by separation yes. of powers? Yes. Well, first of all, I mean that the server that's processing the receipts is not holding any of the money. Yes, yes. Right? Secondly, I mean that the server that's processing the receipts is not able to forge the receipts. So you don't have to trust him with your balance. It's sort of like... Normally, we think of a server as being an authority over us. He has power over us. He can, he can decide what our balance is. You're saying that the server in this case will be just a messenger processing, right. processing machine. He can process the receipts, but he can't falsify them. Okay. He can't just change your balance. Postman. Postman delivering the mail. Right. Okay. Not interfering with the mail. Because uh, he can't forge your signature. Yes. That's for uh, messaging. How, regarding that reference to gold, how do you see that as being separated? I'm sorry, I, I, I could not understand the meaning when you say separation of powers in, in terms of gold as... Uh, well, for example, I mean, instead of having a single entity who controls all the balances and who holds all the gold, you should separate it out. You have maybe one entity who stores the balances, and a different entity who stores the gold. And then that should be separated out. You should have multiple entities who store the gold. And then the entity who stores the balances shouldn't be able to change the balance. He should be able to process it for you, but he shouldn't be able to change it without your permission. So instead of being an authority over you, he should be more like a cloud commodity who's processing things for you. Physical terms of gold, that gold being stored in different locations, how do you see that from operational point of view? Uh, I see different ways for doing that. Okay. I don't like trusting people, especially with money. I think it's a mistake. I think that the system should simply not be designed that way to where you have to trust people. In one case, if you, if you take the gold storage and the balance ledger and separate it out into two different entities, you still have to trust this guy to hold the gold. Yes. Right? So then the next step is, well, let's separate him out into multiple entities. Maybe there's 10 gold issuers, okay. and then we put a basket currency on the servers that combines a single currency across 10 issuers. But then you still have to trust them to store your gold. But at least the risk is distributed, right? And at least you have 10 entities, and if one of them disappears, you still have 90% of the gold, yes. right? Yes. But then I still don't like that. I, I, I don't like that. I don't know if any of you guys like that, but I just don't like it. And so there's layers after that. There's a couple different ways of doing it. One thought we had was, what if we just eliminate the issuer entirely? Is it possible to have a gold-based currency 
but without having to trust anyone at all to hold any gold. Well, there's a couple different ways of doing this. One example is just eliminate gold as a currency and store it in Bitcoin. If you store it in Bitcoin, you can still go in and out in physical gold. In fact, you can use Bitcoin for wiring gold. And this is regardless of the price volatility. Like, for example, let's say the price of Bitcoin today is $500 of Bitcoin. And let's say tomorrow it's $10. Let's say the price drops from $500 to $10. That's one of the things we hear about in the media quite a bit is they complain that, well, the price is very volatile. It's a volatile price. But I ask myself, okay, as a currency, that's a, that's a legitimate complaint. But as a technology, is it a legitimate complaint? No. Let's say I want to wire some gold to Africa. I'll take an ounce of gold. Let's say today it's $500. Let's say it's $600 for a Bitcoin. And let's say that gold is $1,200 an ounce. Just for an example, right? I'm making up numbers. So I take an ounce of gold. I give it to anyone who's willing to buy the gold for Bitcoins. He gives me two Bitcoins. I send the two Bitcoins to Africa. Grandma receives the two Bitcoins, and then she gives them to someone for an ounce of gold. So I see that I can use Bitcoin for wiring gold. I can take an ounce of gold and wire it to Africa, regardless of the price. Now tomorrow, let's say the price drops to $10 per Bitcoin. So I want to wire an ounce of gold. So I give someone an ounce of gold. He gives me 60 Bitcoins. And then I send those to Africa, and then grandma gets them, and she gives them to someone, and they give her an ounce of gold. You see, the ability to wire an ounce of gold exists regardless of the price volatility. The price volatility is irrelevant. If you just look at it as a technology, it's useful for that purpose, regardless. Now, I believe that the volatility is going to end. I believe that the price is going to go up um, until it reaches market equilibrium. I think it's going to be a very rocky ride on the way up. And then it's going to sort of flatten out and not change too much. In that scenario, I could just store my money in Bitcoin and withdraw it in gold. You could have a a Bitcoin ATM or, say, a gold vending machine. And you just pull out some gold and use it if you wanted to. And then you put it back in and it goes back into Bitcoin again. So I should be able to store my money in Bitcoin and withdraw and deposit in gold form whenever I want. And this way, I don't have to have a gold issuer who's trusted to hold the gold. Right? Instead, I'm just holding Bitcoins. I'm holding them safely, preferably. Okay? Now, is there another way of doing this? Another way that we're looking at, and I suggest you guys Google this, is there's an article called Lex Cryptographia. Sort of like Lex Mercatoria. Lex Cryptograph is funny, right? And the idea is that you could have a gold issuer who is actually a virtual corporation. Because OT, you can issue stocks, you can pay dividends, you could have virtual corporations in OT, and you can custom script the bylaws of how these corporations are going to behave. And so, what we envision is creating a virtual corporation to act as a gold issuer, and instead of having some central entity holding a bunch of gold, it's just the edge nodes, or the agents that allow you to move in and out of the currency, and they could post Bitcoin bonds. So you use a surety bond so that if the gold or dollars, if the dollar wire never shows up or the gold is never redeemed, then the surety bond is forfeit and you're paid back in Bitcoin form. So the idea is to use Bitcoin surety bonds as backing for a dollar-based currency or for a gold-based currency and so on. So again, 
you would be able to have a dollar-based currency inside the system without having to trust some guy to hold all the dollars. Yeah. Second question, outline about describing a possible scenario whereby you have two metals for exchange, uh, in which you said, uh, say you want to exchange gold for silver, and right. you have uh, messages peer-to-peer. You are saying to another person, I have gold, I want to buy some silver. And then I am on this server A, and the other person responds, oh, yeah, I didn't know about that server A, right. but I like your offer, and I'm ready to go into a transaction with you. And this decentralized discovery in, in the sense of price discovery, but yep. centralized trading on that particular server. Yep. So can you please come back to that point? And How do you transfer funds yes, between yes, servers? Yes, yes, yes. That's so, your question, right? Yes, thank you. There's several different ways to do it. So I'm going to give you the two primary methods of transferring funds between servers. And of course, this is the sort of thing that you wouldn't really be conscious of as a user. Just be automated by your software behind the scenes. So this is sort of a behind-the-scenes mechanism. The first mechanism is I withdraw my dollar coins from this voting pool. We got color coins here. On the blockchain. And then I put them in this voting pool instead. So I just withdraw my units off of this server, pull the coins out of the pool. Now Alice has them in her Bitcoin wallet, her colored coin wallet. And then she deposits them into this pool and gets the units on this server instead. It's that easy. You just pull the coins out from here and put them in over here. Now another way to do it is through escrow. What you do is, as long as you have an entity on both sides who has an account, So let's say that Bob has an account on server A and an account on server B. So he says, hey, you give me some gold on server A, and I'll give you some gold on server B, minus a fee, right? And then because OT supports escrow, then you can negotiate that through escrow. But I think using the the pools is a much better way of doing it, because then you don't have to find Bob. I don't have to find some guy who has an account on both sides. Instead, I just pull my coins out and then put them over here. Trustless, right? So that's the benefit of blockchain. That's exactly the sort of reason why I like blockchains. Blockchains are very valuable to OT. Even if Bitcoin itself wasn't such an amazing, wonderful thing, I would still want to use it just for OT. Blockchains make it possible to run an OT server anonymously at a profit. That's valuable. What that means is there are going to be servers running anonymously at a profit. I think there's still going to be know-your-customer and anti-money laundering regulation. I think it's going to happen with, with, for example, color coin issuers. Color coin issuers will still take bank wires in and out. They'll still want to get your fingerprint and put a satellite tag on your ear before they're willing to do that. But the transaction server itself, I don't believe it's going to be regulated anymore. And the reason is because it's possible to just run it anonymously at a profit. And so that means people are going to do it. They're going to be running anonymously. They're going to be earning a profit from doing so. And there's not really any stopping it. That does, of course, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be any regulation anymore. It just won't be at the point of the transaction server. And I don't see why it really should be anyway. I mean, you don't have to trust these servers anyway. They can't forge receipts anyway. So who's using OT in production, if anyone at the moment? There are not too many people using it in production. It's still development. There's about 60, 65 people on the IRC channel right now. There are servers running. Uh, there's a game called the Galactic Milieu that uses it for all its market trading. 
So it's definitely had a lot of intensive testing over the past couple of years. It's just been in the past few months that we've got it to the point where there are GUIs that would be reasonable for users. You know, up until now, it's been ugly GUIs for testing command line interfaces. Now we're getting to the point where we have actually nice interfaces. The iPhone app is not for sale yet in the App Store. So anyone who's going to be using it now are going to be mainly testers and sort of uh, new adopters who are using the desktop GUI, which, like I said, is available on Linux, Windows, and Mac. But even now, it's only been in the past few weeks that there are install programs available. Up until that point, you'd have to build it yourself with a C compiler. Now we actually have install programs for Mac and for Windows, so there are people starting to play around with those. On the commercial side, my company Monitas is working very hard towards a beta release. So just to clarify, the design of OT is such that if Alice and Bob transfer between different commodities, such as uh, uh, Bitcoin and gold, that the OT design guarantees the atomicity of that transaction. You can't have the transfer of gold without the transfer of, of, of Bitcoin or, or vice versa. That is correct. It has actual market trading that is atomic. Alice doesn't get the gold unless Bob gets the silver and vice versa. And also, even if we didn't have market trading, you could do that in a smart contract. We actually have a smart contract just as a sample called two-way trade, where Alice doesn't get the gold unless Bob gets the silver. So you're able to do that sort of mono a mano behind the scenes if you want. And you're also able to do it on an actual market where you can see the offers and the current price and so on. I recommend checking out the videos because in the videos I show, I show off the desktop GUI and you can see some of the market stuff in there. Thanks for listening to episode 183 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was sponsored by CryptoKit.com. Content for today's episode was provided by Chris Odom and the Australian Bitcoin Conference. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. See you next time.